You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. That means it's radiotherapy time and your prescription with your RRR subscription. Of course, you might be listening via the web or perhaps a, uh, a podcast version. You could be anywhere and wherever you are. I hope it's as sunny as it is here. I'm Panel Beater. And my co-host this morning is the very future of medical practice herself. No pressure, misdiagnosis. Good morning. Good morning to you. That's um, that's quite a lot of pressure for a Sunday morning. <laughs> Single-handedly hold up the yep, bastion yep. of medicine from now on. Yep, as the only uh, one in the studio in training at the moment for medical profession. And yet the Life. only one without a qualification. <laughs> yep, you're our future. Are you feeling good about that? Um, Training going well? I'm feeling optimistic about it. Not not only just for myself, but for the cohort that I'm coming up with. I think we've got a fantastic cohort of doctors uh, entering the hospital soon. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, and it's um, Asylum Seeker Awareness Week for students. You'll be talking to us a bit later on. Yes, that's correct. It is uh, for medical students at the moment. It is the National Asylum Seeker and Refugee Awareness Week um, at the moment. Um, so we've got a, a whole month of it going, but um, particular week this week um, that I'll talk to you a little bit about coming up. Great, great. And we have a very special guest, Dr Gemma Sharp. Dr Sharp's a clinical psychologist, postdoctoral research fellow at Monash University, specialties in body image and cosmetic surgery, and will be talking with us specifically today about the psychology of cosmetic surgery in general, and more specifically, genital cosmetic surgery. Good morning, Dr Sharp. Good morning. I can't wait to chat about it. Thanks so much for having me. We're really looking forward to... Is your first time with Triple R? It is my first time with Triple R. I'm an absolute virgin in this territory, so uh, please be gentle. <laughs> we'll be gentle, won't we, misdiagnosis? I think we can manage. Yeah. <laughs> look, so we've got a lot to look forward to, um, but first of all, let's find out what's in the news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. So, misdiagnosis, what caught your eye in the news during the week? Well, as you may or may not be aware, it is Are You OK Day, it was on Wednesday of this week, um, and I thought it might be a good time to bring it up and have a chat about it, because as we know, there are four steps with uh, Are You OK and asking someone about whether they're OK or not. Um, I'll just go through those very briefly mm. for those who... Um, might not have heard them before. So the first one is to ask, uh, which is what Wednesday was all about. Um, if you see a colleague or a co-worker or a friend that you're worried about, um, you know, it, it's it's a really good thing to ask them how they're going. But the great thing about um, Are You OK Day is that the website itself um, provide a lot of different tools and tips for asking these questions and starting these conversations. And part of that is this four-step process that they talk about, which is the first one to ask, the second one, to listen and, interestingly, not try and fix the problem immediately, which I think is a trap that often we fall into. The third one is to encourage action. And then the fourth one, which I thought, uh, why I thought we'd bring it up today, is to check in a couple of days later and see how they're going so that you're not just asking this question, going, great, that's Are You OK Day done for this year and mm. then waiting 12 months before <laughs> you bring it up again. Yeah, it's like waiting for Valentine's Day each year to tell your significant other Yeah, something. exactly. And, and similar to Valentine's <laughs> Day, 
I don't think necessarily we need one day a year in no. which we ask people, are they okay? Mm, um, yeah. And, and in fact, that touches on, that, that sort of scratches at me a little bit. Um, but I, you keep going. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll come back to that. Well, I mean, the, the only other thing that I wanted to add with that is just to put the uh, Lifeline number out there again for those who are listening, which is 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14 for Lifeline. Just so let me be a bit contrarian for a moment. If I was to say to you that for me, Are You OK Day is to mental health, what... Earth Day is to climate change and what the 40-hour famine is to global poverty. What do you reckon? Oh, I think... I, I know what you mean. A lot of these things can seem pretty tokenistic. Um, there were girls at my school that used to do 40-hour famine to lose weight. <laughs> oh, <good laughs> you know, sometimes these... The larger messages get lost um, with some of these days. However... It's one thing that we are doing to try and, you know, decrease suicide rates and increase starting these conversations. It's not going to fix it. it yeah, yeah, and we should acknowledge that, right? Mm. It's it's not the promise of are you okay to be the solution, is it? Absolutely. You know, um, yeah. and it's it's drawing community attention to, what is it, 3,000 suicides a year mm. in, in Australia, mm. something of that mm. nature. Um, one is too many. So yeah. anything we can do to reduce that exactly. um, is important. Yeah. And, and, you know, th- this, this conversation, are you okay? Maybe it changes something for one person and maybe, you know, maybe that's enough and maybe we shouldn't be looking to combat all of suicide with one single day. I just think it's about starting this conversation and it, it goes forward towards destigmatizing these issues as well by having national campaigns. But does it? <laughs> really? Dr Sharp, bring you on this. What, what's your reaction to Are You OK? How do you see it? That's, I, think, I think it's a great initiative. Um, I think absolutely it, it would aim to open up the conversation on a more consistent basis. So the Are You OK day is just a symbol of you being able to ask Are You OK at any point of the year. And I think this follow-up step that Belle was talking about of checking in keeps that conversation going. Like you just don't need to check in four days later. You can check in then a week later and then, you know, a month later. Like why not check in regularly after you've had that initial conversation? I, I get the process... I'm just not sure that our, our... I'm not sure that we're organised to really accommodate that process very well. Mm. Um, so um, on campus during the weeks or all the balloons or all the posters, mm-hmm. you know, and all the nudges, emails coming uh, from HR asking us to look out for our colleagues and say, are you OK? Um, and there I am at the photocopier machine in the middle of another 60, 65-hour week, really stressed, publish or perish, mm. um, you know, deadlines, students wanting their assignments back, da da da, da. And So really under the pump. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not just this week. That's like a permanent state of mind in the workplace. And everybody's like that. I'm not special. <laughs> um, and so what, what's institutionally being done to support it, especially when if you were to say, no, I'm not okay, mm. and now that ch- the person asking may have been very sincere, but it definitely changes your relationship with a colleague. Mm. 
Yeah. And and it's it's more than just, you know, it's more than just asking. We need follow-up with this as mm. well, which, you know, I guess is sort of checking in is a nice way of doing it, but it's it's not enough on a sort of systemic level. It's It might be enough on a social level to check in, but we certainly need to have changes within the structure of our workplaces, yeah. not just in the conversations we have, you know, over the photocopy. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and one last point just brought to my attention, and I, I know I recognise I'm being contrary, and I don't want to... <laughs> it's a new set, position for you. <laughs> no, no, sadly, it's a permanent state of being. Um, um, it's one thing to uh, get the conversation going, but then if our health services aren't able to meet the demand, which seemingly they can't at the moment, um, you know, essentially the mental health service infrastructure is um, under strain. Um, we've got our, um, uh, you know, in our mental health regime, you get your 10 free um, appointments um, and we could talk all day about whether that's enough or what 10 means um, but if somebody gets uh, confidence going after 10 and wants to continue then then can they afford it um, if they're looking out for free services are they going to be shuffled around is it going to be the same quality etc etc and, you know, that worries me a little bit. Mm. Well, I have a really great way that the government could save some money. Oh, and yeah. Put it towards you know, mental health services. Um, you, you know, they could maybe consider not keeping people in offshore detention. <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's really expensive. Apparently it's very expensive and oh. apparently not good for your mental health. Uh, that's, that's what I hear, but we can get to that later. We can get to that a bit later. Um, I've got a, just a quick little item that caught my eye um, it's um, a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. I did a segment on radiotherapy uh, earlier on in the year um, when I was talking about Martin um, Shrekley, um, a name that may ring a bell to a few listeners, um, but if not the name, then you might remember the story. Martin Shrekley was a CEO of a uh, big pharma company and he um, exceedingly inflated the price of his drugs um, and um, this went to legal proceedings and the, and the long and the short of it is he went to jail. Um, just this week, <laughs> um, to continue that theme, a uh, CEO of Nostrum Laboratories, his name is uh, Nermal Mule, um, he raised the price of his uh, bladder infection medication from 475 bucks to almost $2,500, about a 400% um, increase um, uh, for this antibiotic. Um, now, that's, that's bad enough in, his, in itself. But when um, interviewed, so this came before um, an inquiry, um, he was asked, you know, what was his explanation for it? And this is what caught my eye. And I'll quote, it's a moral requirement to make money when you can to sell the product for the highest price. You could see the eye rolls <laughs> in the radiotherapy yeah. studio this morning. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, it's... Uh, when, we, when we're talking about, you know, private business, you know, of course there's a profit motive. We accept that in the, in the environment we work. But when we're talking about medication, especially medication that for many... For a type of medication that may not be an option, like you may actually need it, um, to have that pricing so unregulated bit of an issue. Dr Sharp, Look like you were about to say something. There. Absolutely. I mean, um, 
I suppose thinking in broader perspective, if we can maintain everyone's good health, and that's a, a saving to society anyway. So why why not make these things accessible to people and and you know increase their productivity and potentially need less of these medications? You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back. Um, you're listening to Radio Therapy with Panel Beater, Misdiagnosis, and um, our special guest, Dr. Gemma Sharp. <laughs> Dr. Sharp, you've got some really interesting things to share with us this morning. Um, so, your expertise is uh, cos- the psychology of cosmetic surgery. Is that right? Absolutely, Panel Beater. Yeah, it's. Um, I've been looking at the psychology of cosmetic genital surgery in particular for the last five years and we've seen that the numbers of these surgeries being performed has really skyrocketed in lots of Western countries and in fact labiaplasty was the fastest growing cosmetic procedure in the world last year. So it's it's on the up and I want to know why why people are doing it and what they get out of it. Goodness me. What, what sort of numbers are we talking? So it's fastest growing? Is it mm-hmm. growing from a small number to... Um, moderate number or is it growing from a moderate number to a bigger number? It, it has grown from a smaller number to a moderate number, but I think what we are seeing is, I suppose, a growing acceptance of these types of surgeries such that they they might be considered to be more routine, like a, a breast augmentation or a liposuction in years to come rather than being this, I suppose, something that's a bit more obscure. And it, it is literally thousands of uh, women wow. in particular each year getting this done. And where does it fit in with our health system at the moment? So, that, so women used to be able to seek labiaplasty under Medicare um, as long as they had a, a sort of a strong physical or functional reason for having the surgery. But Medicare really cracked down on that in 2014 uh-huh. and now virtually all labiaplasties are performed through the private sector. Goodness me. And, and can you give us an idea of cost? Just while we're it's there. usually between about five thousand and ten thousand dollars. Right, right. Um, and recovery time, time away from work for something like this. Um, gosh, it, it can really vary, but normally they say about a week off mm. work. Um, but you know, you could be feeling pain and, and sensation and physical effects for for maybe months afterwards. Mm. Right. Just before we get to some of those consequences, um, just give us some social context for us. How good are people, are we, at talking about cosmetic surgery of genitalia? I think we're improving. Yeah. Uh, but certainly when I first started researching this, um, the thought of saying vagina on a radio station um, <laughs> was, was um, sort of frowned upon. But I'm really glad that uh, we are improving. But still, I think, especially with uh, younger children, we tend not to use the correct anatomical terms of vulva, labia. Um, we tend to use student. Um, uh, uh, sort of a cute names yeah. like a flower and fufu and it's not really encouraging young people to to be <laughs> to be you know to explore these parts of their bodies which are perfectly normal and healthy you're, you're right my brain just did its little thesaurus <laughs> <laughs> yes I, we could spend the rest of the show right. just really doing right. names yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and it, sometimes that language is you know I, and i guess some parents listening with young children right now have their own way of talking about these things for their own purposes in in the home um but when it comes to something like surgery it's probably really important that people 
can call things what they are, right? Absolutely. You wouldn't want to be... Um, well, that's We know that um, girls and women are going to GPs, other doctors saying, am I right down there? Like, And so it's, it's, you know, it's the time for the, the doctor to actually go through these anatomical names and give that education. Hmm. I think it was uh, um, Dumbledore who said, fear of a name itself uh, only increases fear of the thing. Right. So even when talking go. about Voldemort, we should be using yeah, correct names. I agree. Correct that's names good. for everything. So that's the general population's literacy. What's the literacy like for GPs? That's, I think um, there's certainly been more professional development courses around for GPs, seeing as this is a growing trend. But I can imagine that the GPs uh, bring with them their own history and perhaps they might not be terribly comfortable discussing these issues. It might be that they feel like they want to refer this patient on because it's something that they don't feel knowledgeable enough about. Yeah, but right. there, there certainly is plenty of material out there for them to upskill. What um, are, we, are we looking at particular age groups? That's, so with uh, labiaplasty in particular, it's sort of late teens to early 20s, but then there's also another bubble of uh, sort of 35 to 50. So we've got sort of pre-childbearing and right. post-childbearing. And are you alluding to the reasoning, the motivations there? By, is, That's, I think, I mean, with labiaplasty, it all is to do with appearance, there are some functional reasons as well, but it's predominantly an, like wanting to change the appearance of their genitalia. I suppose for the younger group, it's it might be that they're worried about getting involved in a relationship with the with the genitals that they have, worried that a partner might be say something negative about them. Mm. With the the slightly older group, it might be that they've had children, things might look a little bit different down there. Maybe they're getting back into the dating game mm. and they, they want to sort of look their best, quote unquote. So I think the motivations can be slightly different depending on the age group. So I don't think I'm being too... Um uh, peculiar in saying there's no such thing as normal or typical, is there? Not at all. Yeah. Um, we know there's more and more studies coming out now to show that the range of um, vulva size, shape, colour, texture is just like snowflakes. Yeah, no right. two are alike. Um, and certainly some women will have larger labia, some women will have smaller labia. I think it's really important to uh, acknowledge the role of the labia in sexual pleasure. Like, it, you know, it's there to help with lubrication, mm. um, sensation. So I think when you're considering modifying it, that's a really important point. You only have to travel down to Tasmania to <laughs> MoMA to see the, the Great Wall of Vulvas. Exactly, to look exactly. at the diversity. The Great Wall of Vaginas, yeah. What was his name? Jamie Mc... McKinley, or I think, was the sculptor's name. I should remember that. <laughs> uh, but that technically, out. it's it's vulvas that we're looking at. Not exactly. Yeah, vagina refers to the inside part. Exactly. Um, and so, what are the motivations for um, you know what is what is bringing um, these women into their GP in the first instance? Yeah. So it, it really is that appearance concern, and and I've been spending a, a lot of years looking at what are the drivers of these appearance concerns. It's you know, labiaplasty is a bit more of a, a recent phenomenon. So why, why have we suddenly become so interested in how our genitals look? And there are a couple of things that I've picked up on. And one is um, exposure to media influences, in particular pornography. Um, we tend to see only the idealised genitalia in that for both men and women. Men have got to be massive and women have got to virtually have no genitals at all. 
Um, also receiving negative comments from sexual partners about how your genitals look. Um, we don't really get much feedback on how our genitals look in, in normal life. <laughs> <laughs> at least some of us. And, uh, and so if you get a negative comment from a partner, it really sticks with you. And uh, also um, also fashions at the moment as well. Like there's, you know, we're all wearing yoga pants, active wear. It doesn't really accommodate someone with a slightly larger right. labia. Now, can I, just before we keep going, I was wondering, Gemma, I, you know, I think we're mostly pretty aware of what these different anatomical terms mean. But just for people listening at home who might actually not know the difference between a vulva and a vagina and a labia and a manora and a majora, that kind of, Could you just Absolutely. take us through the anatomy? Sure. <laughs> Great question, misdiagnosis. Um, so just my own learning. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Upskilling everyone. Um, so the vulva refers to basically the whole of the external genitalia, which, is, which includes the vaginal lips. So the outer vaginal lips are the labia majora and the inner vaginal lips are called the labia minora. And they're the ones that people are getting surgery on mostly. And the vagina of course refers to the internal part so if you're um if you're unsure of any of these terms there's a fantastic website called the labia library which has great pictures and has a really nice anatomical diagram there for you to to use to teach um teach your kids with even to upskill yourself fantastic thank you thank you um Oh, I just lost my train of thought there. <laughs> I know what it was. Um, is there is there any research to tell us um, uh, the role of mental health in this, uh, either before or after um, the surgery? Yes. Um, so it's a growing area. Uh, I suppose the diagnosis we're most concerned about in cosmetic surgery settings is body dysmorphic disorder, where people believe that they have this um, abnormality and uh, it has absolutely devastating effects on their lives. And what we know is that people with body dysmorphic disorder, if they Mm -hmm. undergo surgery, they usually get no better or even get worse. And these are the types of patients who will potentially sue their surgeon, maybe even... um, attack violently there have been cases of where surgeons have been killed in the states by patients who have been so unhappy with how they look so that's that's i suppose the key issue that we look out for but my own research we've looked at anxiety and depression in uh, women seeking labiaplasty and compared to a sort of normal population group they they do have more symptoms so i think yeah they they tend to have some poorer mental health when they go into it so does any form of counselling take place in advance of surgery? I think it so much depends on the, the surgeon themselves. Um, I suppose my goal would always be that anyone who has any kind of procedure like this would have uh, some psychological screening go on. And that's actually a research project I'm working on at the moment, designing a really nice screener for surgeons to use that their patients can fill in quickly in the waiting room and then they can follow up. So I think sometimes there probably is very little screening done and other times it's probably done really well. So, I mean, you know, I'm a bit confused about this. So, you you know, I, I decide one day that I don't like my labia minora. I go to my GP, I say, don't like my labia minora. Can you give me a referral to a surgeon? They give me to a referral. And then, and then what, I can just go and have the procedure done? For sure, yeah. In fact, you, you could even bypass your GP. You could go straight to the surgeon and get it done privately. So, yeah, it, it can all happen fairly quickly. We have tried to... Um, in fact, some guidelines came out in 2016 to say that there should be a cooling off period. Um, but I think by the time people go and request these procedures, they've usually been unhappy for quite a long time. And so waiting a little bit longer really 
isn't a big deal for them. Right. Yeah, it just it does seem, um, you know, with with a procedure that essentially is an elective cosmetic procedure mm. um, to go to be able to go straight from I'm unhappy with this part of my body to please cut it off seems pretty extreme. You know, I would have thought mm. there'd be more steps involved, more counselling, more, you know, why do you want to get this done and is this yeah. really the thing that's making you unhappy? Absolutely. Maybe you should dump your boyfriend. <laughs> a sort of a have a boyfriendectomy instead mm. of a yeah. labiaplasty. Cheaper, I think. <laughs> True. I think, well, if if a, a, a person did go to their GP about this, I think that's a golden opportunity for the GP to do that kind of exploratory assessment and, and counselling if appropriate. And if the person really still wants to go see a surgeon go let them see a surgeon but I'd hope that this surgeon would do a really good job at explaining potential complications potential um, side effects if there are any benefits um, yeah what to expect and then the person can give the most informed decision about the procedure and even just what normal is because as we've spoken about there is a huge huge range of normal and maybe you know for some of these young women you know, they don't know that actually you know what they have is not necessarily a different thing it's 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 just part of a normal spectrum yeah i agree and in fact um having a larger labia might actually enhance their sexual pleasure rather than diminish it three triple Welcome back, Radiotherapy, uh, Panel Beta, Misdiagnosis and uh, Dr Gemma Sharp. And we're talking all things uh, cosmetic surgery, in particular um, general cosmetic surgery. Um, just during that uh, little break there, um, Gemma, you were um, telling us about the sorts of things that people might be able to do um, if this is on their mind at the moment. That, that's right, uh, Panel Beater. I was thinking that uh, there are excellent resources like the Labia Library website, but sometimes people are aware that their genitals are in the normal range, but they still just really like, really dislike the appearance. Like they go, it's ugly, it's unsightly. And I suppose uh, what I've been working on this year is actually designing a mobile app which kind of simulates face-to-face therapy um, and and takes a lot of, uh, I suppose, the work we've been doing on body image and, and aims to help women feel better about their genital appearance because we know that actually speaking to someone about the way your genitals look is pretty confronting. So that's why we've designed this mobile app and the pilot study is coming up soon. And we hope that, you know, people will take us up on this because I suppose it's a free mobile app as opposed to $5,000 surgery. Why not give it a shot? And what have you got to lose? If you still want to have surgery afterwards, so be it. I'd, I'd be disappointed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, um, it's another option because at the moment we really don't have any specific therapies in this field and that app readily accessible via google play itunes um, so if people get in contact with me at monash so just google my name Gemma sharp and monash university and get in contact with me and they can join the pilot study um i'm just wondering about division of labor here what's the relationship between gynecologists and plastic surgeons that's, so both of them can perform this operation. It's a very contentious issue between those two professions. I think they both think that they're best suited to it. Plastic surgeons go, well, this is my bag. I've done all this surgery training. And gynecologists are like, well, we know women's genitals better than you do. So, <laughs> and I think possibly um, gynecologists are a little more anti this surgery mm. than plastic surgeons are, just, just speaking generally. 
Mm. So the cosmetic surgeons would would not necessarily have been gynecologists at some point. No, no, they you know they've been performing boob jobs, yeah. rhinoplasties. They they may not have performed that many labiaplasties, and so it's really important if you are going to seek this procedure, ask your surgeon how many of these have you actually done, and and what have the women's <laughs> responses been? Goodness, um. Sorry, uh, misdiagnosis. Were you about to? Oh no, no, I, no. Just I'm deep in thought about this. <laughs> so, you know, turning up at the surgeon's office and saying I'd like you to cut this bit of me off, and it just, oh, it just seems like a very, very extreme response to um, what essentially I think sounds more like a psychological problem than really a physical problem. That being said, you know, some of this can cause really significant distress for women, and I don't want to underestimate that distress as well mm. because. You know, it's all very well for me to say, well, you know, sort of go talk to someone and are you okay about your genitals and that kind of thing. But, you know, for a lot of women, this can be an incredibly distressing part of their life that they can feel really inhibited by. Absolutely. And I think that's what um, that's what we aim to do with the start of the app is kind of validate why women would be concerned about this. All of the media messages, the sociocultural environment that they find themselves in breeds this dissatisfaction. So it is not a surprise. And what we're going is, you know what? you can actually counteract these messages. You don't have to buy into this Barbie doll genital mm. ideal that's being promoted. And when we say media messages, Gemma, are we talking about pornography? It's predominantly pornography, I think, but also sometimes, as we were talking a little bit before, about the, the fashions as mm. well. So, so naked and clothed genitals are yeah. always depicted as that smooth curve. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, isn't it in magazines, especially magazines for teenage girls, you're actually not allowed to show a labia minora, otherwise they get an R plus rating. That's right, yeah. So any protruding labia minora is considered to be the equivalent of an erect penis, uh, which we we know is not the case, um, which is why that attracts that R plus rating. Yeah. Um, it's it's really hard to ignore, and I shouldn't ignore for obvious reasons, that men have got a lot to answer for here, don't we? That's, I think... Um, don't they always? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, when, when women say that they've received a negative comment about their genitals, it mm. usually is an ex-boyfriend. Yeah. But, I mean, that's not to say that they haven't received comments maybe from a sibling. Sometimes even their mum comes in thinking they're abnormal because their vulvas look different from theirs. So, yeah, I think it's a bigger problem. But even even the surgical industry, as far as this goes, I'm sure it's male-dominated, right? As Well, you know, surgeons Absolutely. are predominantly yeah. male. Yeah. Um, I do know that uh, that women tend to prefer going to a female surgeon to get this done. I think they think a female surgeon will have more understanding of the issues that they're going through. Um, mm. But, yeah, the bulk of surgeons are male. So wh- how... What would you say about the role of men in their relationships now? I mean, it, 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 it seems too obvious to say. It's just about being non-judgmental, right? <laughs> but is there something else to it? I think, well, men have grown up with the same kind of media influences that these women have. So mm. they may also be thinking, yes, what goes on in pornography is what I should be doing. Like a woman should have an orgasm within three seconds. Uh, so I think it's about getting in earlier, like making sure that pornography is not the teacher of this next generation coming through. It's been a long time since I was in high school. Have either of you got any insights into what is going on in high school education as far as this is concerned? Or anything closely related? I was probably in high school more recently. (laughs) Um, when, When I was in high school, we used to have 
um, semi-anatomically correct models that they'd bring in for sex ed. Um, and from memory, none of them had a labia minora. Um, and, you know, it was mostly the kind of sex ed that was, you know, STIs and, and infection control and pregnancy. I think what's missing in the sexual education is that, you know, sex is fun, sex is a good thing and the, the education should be around pleasure, not just around disease mm. because we don't exist in a state where not having disease is good and having disease is bad. Mm. You know, we exist in a state where not having disease is good and then how do you make a good life and how do you live mm. a healthy, happy, you know, content life? And that includes, you know, for a lot of people, that includes sexual pleasure for most people. Mm. And so you know, it, it just disappoints me that I think that a lot of uh, education at school is purely based around not getting pregnant and not getting diseased. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I imagine if there was a teacher in the room, what would they say? They'd say, look, the curriculum's already so full. We're trying to do so much. How do we leave something out to include that? And mm, tough, tough call, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Sounds like parents and teachers yeah. together and maybe using some of these online resources that we've been yeah. talking about in the show to start the conversation. Mm. I, I know it can be awkward, so I think if you've got a, a, a nice online resource with which to show kids, because they're getting their information online anyway, yeah. so why not yeah. point them in the direction of a more healthy website or app? Mm. And I, I know there's, um, I think it's Oh My God Yes, which is a, a great <laughs> app for women. Exactly, exactly. I don't think that would be for children no. uh, or, for, or for anyone great age. name for an app. Um, exactly. Um, yeah, I think they're, uh, it is teachers and parents together and why not have a bit of a section on what is a healthy relationship and what isn't. Yeah. Time's flying, but just in um, a minute or so to, to wrap up our chat here, um, where what about men and the psychology of cosmetic surgery, general cosmetic surgery and men at the moment? What's going on there? Numbers are growing in men as well. Mm -hmm. I think um, with men there's lots of different types of procedures that they can get done. There's lengthening and thickening and some of them are surgical and some are not. But I think um, sort of how to get a bigger penis is one of the most Google search terms. Um, and uh, men, <laughs> I think about 45% of men wanted a, a larger penis. It was 0.2% wanted smaller. Only 45%. I know. That's what I said. Only, I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Boom tish. You know, just, just like women's genitals, there's a very wide range of normal. It's just mm. the same for men. And um, I suppose the feedback we get from women is all sort of, it's not how big it is, it's how you use it. But uh, with men also, they're influenced by pornography mm. and it's always the sort of well-endowed porn actors who are involved in those and when they compare themselves with the guys in the locker room it's always the sort of the guy with the largest penis who has his towel off and is parading around yep every change room's got one of those Ex exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> panel beta but the um the, so so just just going back to the medical side of it so the surgery that men are looking for so it's it's lengthening and thickening are there are there other types of cosmetic surgery that men are you know engaging in uh, besides in uh, genital, ge genital yeah. focus. Oh, no, I mean genital focus. That's, so the um, the procedure I've had the most experience with is actually the injection of a filler, which is normally injected into the face, into the shaft of the penis to make it thicker. Right. It's much easier to do the thickening procedures than the lengthening. Because mm. um, what can actually happen sometimes with the lengthening procedures is that the penis ends up shorter as a result of complications from the surgery. Like um, they'll... Ouch. Yes, yes. We, it's certainly not, not... It's very much considered to be experimental. Mm. Um, and yes, everyone has their own technique and none of them 
tend to be very successful. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back uh, to Radiotherapy Panel Beta, Misdiagnosis, and our guest, uh, Dr. Gemma Sharp. Misdiagnosis, I gather you were um, uh, at a conference recently. Yes, that's correct. I, I had the absolute pleasure of being part of an organising committee for um, uh, the AMSA Global Health Conference, and AMSA is the Australian Medical Student Association, um, and we ran a conference here in Melbourne uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, which was very, very exciting because it was our, our global health conference, so all things sort of medical on a global spectrum. Um, and we had the biggest attendance that we've ever had for this particular conference, which was 850 delegates wow. in the Melbourne Town Hall, um, conference run entirely by medical student volunteers. So there were about 60 of us um, sort of giving up our time during lectures and things to frantically email speakers. Um, but it was it was an incredible conference. It was incredibly inspirational, um, a lot of a lot of fun, but a lot of really interesting stuff, including uh, we had a you know I think it must have been an Australia first, which was a, a session where we had a live phone call with uh, a young man called Beirouz Bouchani on Manus Island. Oh. So he was able to get a mobile phone and um, he WhatsApp called into a session with eight hundred and fifty delegates watching. And the students were able to ask him questions on on Manus uh, from the audience. Um, so he's he's a Kurd- Kurdish journalist who fled Iran in 2013, uh, went by boat to Christmas Island and was deported to Manus. Has been there since 2013, um, and he you know he, he's been writing and uh, he's just published his first book, No Friend But the Mountain, writing from Manus Prison. But I, I thought you know on on the back of this conversation that. You know, sitting there as a medical student in the audience um, and and listening to him talk about the conditions, I thought it might be um, a good chance to sort of have a quick chat about refugees and asylum seekers, especially because it is our refugee national refugee and asylum seeker awareness month um, for medical students. Um, and you know, I thought it might be a good time to do a bit of myth busting around refugees and asylum seekers. I love a good myth bust. Go for it. Excellent. So the first thing that, um, you know, I think people think about with refugees is if we stop imposing harsh immigration policies, we're going to have this huge flood of asylum seekers, we're going to lose control of our borders, we're going to be overrun. I mean, is this something that, you know, you've both heard of or heard I've people talk about? I've heard of this, yes. It, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a real... Um, mm. I guess it's a starting point for a lot of people in the way that they think about this. Um, And, you know, and and then there's offshoots around nationalism and all of that sort of thing that we see. Mm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting because there's actually no statistical evidence or basis for this particular myth. And I understand why people are afraid of this. You know, the, the economy is not in a fantastic state at the moment and people get worried that jobs and things will be taken away. But statistically, there is no evidence that this will happen at all, which is partly because our domestic policy of detention is not effective in deterring asylum seekers anyway, because their <laughs> primary goal is safety. Mm. It's not coming and stealing jobs, it's being safe. Yeah. And it's not going to change you know, depending on our, our policies. So, you know, I think that's one of the first things that we think about. The second one is that refugees are a massive burden on our economy. Uh, and this one, I think, is really, really interesting because, in a way, at the moment, they are a massive burden on our economy because we're sticking them in offshore detention, which is actually not to say that refugees are a massive burden. It's that offshore detention itself is a massive burden. I've got some really scary facts here and statistics that I can read out if you're interested. Just before you do, yes, mm. but just be, just even that language burden, you know, um, 
you know, there's a moral imperative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a sense that even if it does come at something, some kind of cost, um, economic or um, you know, in some even small way social, then that's never going to outweigh the moral imperative to support people who are, um, for very most of the time, um, very good reason leaving where they're they're coming from. And not only that, but you know, Australia is a signatory to several key international treaties, including the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees. You know, we are legally required to look after these people. We have signed these declarations. Mm. We have made a stance as a country that this is something we're prepared to do. And then we're deciding that they're a burden and we're no longer interested. Yeah. yeah. What were those stats that you were just... Yeah. So, you know, this is when I say sort of a burden. <laughs> Essentially, offshore detention is an incredible burden on our economy. It costs $400,000 a year to hold a single asylum seeker in offshore detention. And to put that into perspective, if we were to have that same asylum seeker living in the community on a bridging visa while their claim is being processed and being supported you know, by the state... That would be $40,000. It's 10 times more expensive to keep these people in offshore detention. Yeah, and, and that, those dollars, they include uh, health services, right, and radiotherapy with its attention to those sorts of issues. You know, it, it would still be cheaper to offer counselling here, it'd be still cheaper to offer all the, all the clinic-type um, health services um, if people are onshore, wouldn't it? And the cost of people of keeping people in offshore detention, the average period of time that uh, a refugee or asylum seeker will stay in offshore detention is about 430 days, yeah, right. so over My a year. Goodness. And we know that, you know, PTSD sets in round about 12 to 18 Post-traumatic. Months. I Thank mean, you. they're likely to have already developed PTSD from the country that they fled and yeah. then just be experiencing it in Australia. Absolutely. And we make it so much worse by Absolutely. putting them in, in Absolutely. Re-traumatising them. Yeah. I mean, are we forgetting that Australia is built on the back of migration? Mm. I, I think, think we are. These people are likely to be an asset. <laughs> Well, um, I can throw in a bit of pub trivia type um, stat for, <laughs> for good measure. <laughs> um, people often uh, talk about uh, certain certain people among us um, grumble about foreign aid expenditure, mm. um, and um, I love wheeling out the statistic that when uh, an asylum seeker, refugee, immigrant um, uh, settles in Australia, uh, the amount of money that they send back to their respective countries is a magnitude of about 20 or 30 times what we spend on on foreign aid. So um, with the stats that you put through, Ms Diagnosis, with that stat, the economic argument is clearly not... It, the economic argument is, an, is a camouflage mm. for something mm. else that's going on and it's pretty unsavoury, I reckon. Absolutely. I, I think the other thing that I want to make clear with this is that you know, this information is not necessarily in the public domain. And if people are sitting at home and they're thinking, you know, why don't we know about this? Why don't? Why wasn't I aware that this is how much it's costing? It's not because you're not listening or not, you know, not trying to educate yourself. It's because the government doesn't publish this data very readily and very openly. Yeah, yeah. Wow, a big topic. We've only got mm. um, about a minute and a half, but w- where are you hearing... In that conference... Was there a particular theme from med students to the asylum seeker? Um, was there a medical angle in particular that was in, of interest to the students? Yes, yeah, so so we take the stance that um, 
uh, health is a human right yep. uh, and that denying someone uh, access to health is denying them access to their human rights. Um, I, I think the other, the other part of it is that, um, you know, we get relatively little education about this as medical students and what we have done is tried to educate ourselves so our peers... Um, have put together some incredible resources which can be found um, on the Facebook page which is called AMSA Crossing Borders. That's A-M-S-A and then Crossing Borders. Uh, That's the um, Australian Medical Student Association uh, group that deals with refugee and asylum seeker health Uh, and you can direct any inquiries through the Facebook page itself um, and they'll find the right people. Um, And, you know, a lot of the facts and figures, statistics and resources are on that Facebook page as well. Brilliant, brilliant. Thanks for that. Really, really interesting. Um, time's, uh, time's got us. It's time to go. So big thanks, Miss Diagnosis. A special thanks to our guest, uh, Dr Gemma Sharp. Thanks so much for having me. It's been brilliant. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.